Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by organizers, activists, scholars, and many of the great revolutionaries in modern history. Our topic for this week is oil. Perhaps more than any other commodity, oil is essential to the functioning of the global economy. We'll discuss why this is and how capitalists have ferociously competed over the years to control the world's supply of oil. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons, at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today. If you rely on this show, if you enjoy listening to it, help support independent programming. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com, and that's spelled R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you. We're so happy to be able to continue these discussions. One year, or no, I think it's two years before Karl Marx finished Capital, his epic work describing the inner workings of capitalism in the capitalist economy. John D. Rockefeller formed Standard Oil, and within a few years, Standard Oil became the dominant corporation in America, the biggest monopoly. Finally, under the ruling of the Supreme Court, Standard Oil was broken up into numerous smaller companies. Those companies then remonopolized, and during the entire period, of course, John D. Rockefeller just became richer and richer finally adopting the mantle not of a capitalist tycoon and an enemy of the working class, but a philanthropist. But we're going to talk today about oil because it's about the metamorphosis of capitalism from an earlier stage to a monopoly stage. We're going to talk about oil as a central commodity. We want to talk about oil and the role the dollar, the US dollar plays because oil is transacted in dollars about the rise of OPEC and the politics of oil. We have a lot to cover, Professor Wolf, but let's get started. You know, when you look at the Wall Street Journal today, all the big headlines are, is oil going to go up? The price of oil, it's been going up a lot in different parts of the country. You can see that at the gasoline pump in California, regular gasoline is selling at almost $5 a gallon. 
again, it's a commodity that has a lot of flux as a consequence of the business cycle, but let's just start big picture oil in the world capitalist economy. Okay. As you correctly said, oil is one of the basic commodities of the modern economy. It is not only the fuel out of which we make everything from electricity to gasoline to power our vehicles to fertilizer to make possible modern agriculture to heat our homes and much, much, much more. We have built the modern economy on oil. Its availability uh, is relatively inexpensive uh, most of the time at least in the early decades, made business more and more build its technology around oil. So oil enabled the technology, the technology made the oil more urgent and more crucial, back and forth, and you get a modern capitalist system that is dependent on oil for many, many things. The problem, if you like, is with the supply of oil given that the demand has risen astronomically over the last century, the supply is a natural issue. Where is the oil? And are there substitutes for oil? And basically the answer is the oil is concentrated in very few places. And while there are other sources of energy, gas, solar, water, and so on, so far, global capitalism has focused on oil, and it has so far not been, and this has to be faced, not been much shaken by ecological or environmental concerns. We know that burning fossil fuels like oil is very damaging to our environment. It is very threatening to our climate and to our survival. But that has not basically changed an economic system's dependence on oil. And to be honest, it hasn't even stopped the growing dependence on oil. Every projection about oil use over the next few years says it will go up in the world, particularly as the poorer parts of the world, euphemistically called emerging economies these days, want to stop being poor, know that that has to do with developing modern industry, and therefore, whether they want it or not, they are growing demanders of more oil in order to industrialize their economies. And so the demand for oil continues. And by the way, the negative consequences for the environment of burning oil also increase. The industry has not only been unconcerned about all of this, but when it feels as though maybe the consciousness about the environment might threaten their interests, they have been very active and spent lavish amounts of money to muddy the waters, to undercut ecological consciousness so that their industry can continue to generate enormous profits. All right, so then where is the oil? This is a very important to understand. While we're always finding new sources of oil, that doesn't really change the picture of a few parts of the world 
being crucial in terms of the oil being located in the ground there in one form or another. So to to make it as dramatic as I know how, let me tell you that in terms of producing oil, finding it, bringing it up to the surface so we can use it as human beings, three countries, three, have almost half of all the oil available, and they are now accounting for almost half, I believe it's 43, 44% of the production of oil. And those three countries are the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia. And so, by the way, when you hear about disputes and struggles between those countries, try never to forget that whatever the disputes you're seeing in the newspaper, they are all getting together and most of the time working out a deal that is profitable to all three of them. Sure, there are tensions and disagreements. They usually get ironed out. Sometimes they don't and things flare up. But most of the time, these otherwise hostile powers work things out very nicely to take care of the profit flow all of them depend on. In the United States, just to give you an idea, the production of oil, bringing it up to the surface and so on, employs half a million people. It's an enormously important industry. And by the way, the half million doesn't count the people involved in transporting the oil, in refining it into gasoline, to refining it and transforming it into fertilizer, and so on and so on and so on. This is a huge industry. And the first thing I want everyone to understand is, if the whole world is a buyer, and in almost every case, a growing buyer, but a tiny number of producers are providing the supply, you have a classic case of a monopoly market, the opposite of a quote-unquote free market, the opposite of what is celebrated in the textbooks as a competitive market. Because the very few who control the production, and without the production of the oil, all the rest of the oil industry wouldn't exist, the production is crucial. And there we have a handful of countries I could add Iran and Nigeria and Venezuela and a few others, a handful of countries together with a handful of companies together, that's the oil suppliers. And of course, they get together when they need to, to, and now I'm going to say it in as blunt in English as I know, to rip the world off to make the price of oil whatever they think they can get away with. Nothing holds them back except that they can't push the price so high that people literally would stop buying the oil. Industries would crash, the economies would fold. They don't want to provoke that because that kills the goose that lays their particular golden egg. And the reason I bring that up is that they're at one of those moments right now. The price during the worst of the pandemic, early in 2020, the price of oil in world markets touched down to around $10 a barrel. 
over the last week and a half, it was around $70 a barrel. So everyone should understand, over the last 14, 15 months, you and I may have had all kinds of difficulty, but the oil industry saw itself losing because the price of oil went down when the pandemic shut the world economy down and the crisis of capitalism on top of the pandemic shut the world economy down. They got together, cut back on the supply of oil, went to work, and over the year that we all suffered unemployment, lost income, uh, forced enclosure in our homes, wearing masks, they got together, fixed the oil market the way they want to, so we went from $10 a barrel uh, early in 2020 to $70 a barrel now. And you know what the fear is over the last week? Will the higher price of oil contribute to an inflation, which we know is happening across the economy, particularly here in the United States, where the average inflation is now over 5%. Will the crazy rise in the price of oil, engineered by the handful of companies and countries that control the market in the way that I've described, will this rising price of oil make the inflation go up? And here's their thinking. Oh my goodness, they say, and by the way, they say this publicly, if we help make the inflation a problem, the central banks of the world, led by the Federal Reserve in the United States, will have to do something about that inflation. The only thing they know how to do is raise interest rates, cut back on the quantitative easing, the money creation, that will pull the stimulus that the government has given to capitalism because capitalism is now on life support from government stimulus. If that stimulus is reduced, the whole thing could fall down again and we could see the price of oil going back down to $10 from the 70 we've just raised it to. That we don't want to do and bingo, over the last few days, you saw them announce they're going to increase the supply of oil, bring the price down a little, say from 70 to 60 bucks, because that's a lot less painful for their profits than having it collapse. I tell you these details only to have Americans understand, the audience of this program, a tiny handful of big corporations and countries sit together, their representatives sit together in a room, and it doesn't have to be a very large room because there aren't that many of them, and they manipulate this market. And you and I end up paying whatever price we have to pay for the goods and services made with energy from oil, for the crops grown with fertilizers made from oil, and what we pay for that food, and what we pay for everything else, including running our car, heating our home, and all the rest, is determined by a tiny group of people that are not only not elected by us, they have no accountability to us. We don't even know who they are unless we're on top of the details and see the cast of characters that are pulling this off. It is a mockery of anything remotely like a democratic economy. It's a mockery of the textbook examples of how capitalist economies work. It is the real world. It is what really shapes our standard of living. 
but it is barely exposed in the schools, in the media, or by the politicians who are mostly in the bag paid for by these industries. Richard, about 50 years ago, about it's actually about 48 years ago, the countries that constituted OPEC, the oil petroleum exporting countries, who had band together to form a cartel, and that group originally included Venezuela, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. They started to communicate with each other in 1949. In 1960, they formed OPEC. During the tumultuous 1960s, when there was a wave of revolution all over the world, and there was the wave of pan-Arabism in the Arab world, which was demanding that the oil-producing countries in the Middle East take control of and determine the price of the commodity that they have, that would be oil, so as to alleviate poverty in those countries. And poverty was very, very great. Then in 1973, after the October war between Israel and the Arab countries, the OPEC countries declared a boycott of oil. And you can well remember, and I certainly remember, huge shortages. And we had to line up at gas lines, which people around the world are very used to, but Americans are not used to. And if your license plate ended with an even number, you got your gas on one day. And if it ended with an odd number, you got it the next day. So there was a rationing system. And during that time, Newsweek, Time Magazine, all the media were making the case that the Arab world had us, the West, by the throat because they controlled this vital resource, this commodity on which the industrial economies were dependent. Now they had taken over, they had you know, taken control of it for their own narrow nationalist reasons. And that actually began this wave of anti-Arab sentiment in the United States. Now, before OPEC was formed, there was something called the Seven Sisters, which were the seven largest multinational oil companies, most of which, maybe all of them, were derivatives of John D. Rockefeller's original standard oil monopoly. So when the Supreme Court broke up the monopoly, other oil companies formed, then they began to wipe out the competition. They became minor monopolies. Finally, there was just seven of them left. They determined the price of oil the countries that were producing oil got very little. They, because they controlled shipping and refining, they were able to you know, take the lion's share of the profits. So there was this rebalancing in a way of where the money was allocated, where the profits were going, where the revenues were going. And some of the Arab countries became very, very rich. At least their elites became very, very rich. Now, the reason I want to talk about all that is that Eventually, it became clear that even if Saudi Arabia or the UAE or Iraq were making lots of new money because they were able to determine the price of oil as the producing countries, they had to do something with the money they derive profits from. And that money and those profits were derived in dollars, American-made dollars. And they were deposited in U.S. banks because they could get the most return from U.S. banks or U.S. financial institutions or U.S. hedge funds. And so these petrodollars, instead of really empowering the emerging nations or the third world, ended up actually just buttressing both local elites 
And the same companies or the banks, some of which are still owned by the Rockefellers, such that actual control over oil or production of oil didn't ultimately change the balance of forces between the emerging formerly colonized world and those handful of countries that constituted the colonizers. Just talk a little bit about that because that legacy remains unchanged. I see now Venezuela, which is a big oil producer and used to be the main oil producer supplying the United States outside of the United States. They can't sell their oil in the United States, but the US, because of its control over shipping and insurance for shipping, is actually preventing Venezuela from selling oil to anybody. So even though you would think Venezuela should be consistently very affluent, the power relationship in the world is such that even though countries are no longer formal colonies, the neocolonialism and that impact of the power imbalance has this profound impact. Anyway, talk about that if you would. I'd be glad to. Let's begin with what we all know is true and has always been true, that if a poor country in the world like Iraq, like Iran, like Nigeria, like Venezuela, and so forth. If a poor country is lucky enough to find under its soil large reserves of oil, gas, and so on, it could be that they could use this enormously valuable resource to develop their society, to get out of their horrible poverty which is legendary now as it was legendary 50 years ago, legendary in the worst possible sense of the term. Could they have done something with that? Yes. Could they have escaped their poverty by using it in a creative economic way? Absolutely. But they didn't. So we have to examine why not. At first, in the early decades of the oil industry, here's how it went. The country didn't have the technology, didn't have the connections, didn't have the trained personnel to get the oil out of the ground, let alone to properly store it and transport it. So the only thing they could do was make a contract with the companies that could do this, the Rockefeller companies, among others. But there were companies, Shell and Total in Europe, as well as the standard oil companies here in this country and so on. And the contracts that were written were not surprisingly written in favor of those companies, because if the companies didn't agree, the country by itself couldn't do anything with that oil underneath the ground. So they had to give a contract and the companies understood that they would give a little bit to the country since these were very poor countries. And since it only meant you had to give money to a handful of people, you know, the king, because these were still monarchies or whatever the leadership was, you could get away with giving the local country very, very little. And that's one of the reasons why gasoline was cheap in the United States in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on. Very cheap. That helped develop the dependence of this country on oil, that cheapness. So the companies made a fortune because it cost them a penny a gallon. They charged us 25 cents a gallon. They made all the profit in between. They gave half a, a penny to the local uh, politicos in these poor countries. End of story. 
Well, when the 60s came, when the 50s and 60s began to make revolutions happen, like the one you referred to earlier, Mossadegh in Iran and places like that, then the companies faced a new problem. Really massive popular uprisings would make the people begin to ask the question that I'm focusing us on, namely, why haven't we used the resources in our country under the soil to benefit the society? Why have we been ripped off by a handful of foreign companies making a fortune while we remain poor? The companies understood the threat. If they could, they overthrew those governments, like the Western countries together with the oil companies got rid of Mossadegh uh, in the 50s in Iran. But when you couldn't, or when it was dangerous, you might spark an area-wide revolution, then it wasn't enough to get rid of the individual leader who threatened you, whether it was Mossadegh in Iran, or it was Saddam Hussein in Iraq, or uh, fill in the blank. Then you had to give them a bigger cut, and you did. You wanted to develop their military so that they could police their own people to keep them from interfering with the endless pulling of oil out of the ground. And so a deal was struck. We're going to give you a lot more money. We're going to jack up the price of oil and gas in the United States so that our profit goes even higher, but we'll give you a piece of it so that you're strong enough to protect us. We're going to buy you as our protectors uh, in this ripoff of your country. And they were all too willing, most of the governments, not all, but most of them over there. So the oil companies worked out a strategy. We Americans would all pay more for gas. That would increase their profits. They would give a small share of their increased profits, which would be an enormity to those governments over there, and every problem would be taken care of. Except those, those countries, that often happens, kept demanding more and more, threatening, if you like, that they might not protect the pipelines, the drilling rigs, and all the stuff that was in there on their countryside. So you had to give them more and more. At which point the United States oil industry got together with the politicians in Washington and they worked out an adjustment. We're going to give you all this money, a good portion of what the American people off for in terms of their heating oil, their gasoline, and all the rest of it. But we want you to keep the money we pay you in dollars, as Brian and you rightly pointed out. We want you to put it back into the United States. That's the deal. Otherwise, we are going to, and then the conversation trailed off, they were to be intimidated by the veiled threat. But they weren't interested in being intimidated. It was fine with them. And by the way, in their countries, they will be forever haunted by what they agreed to do. They took the money they got from the oil they gave to the big oil companies of the West, and they invested it back in the West. You may not know it, but the largest shareholder in Citibank in New York, one of the largest banks in the United States, is the um, Saudi Arabia. 
They invested their money here. They took the money in their poor country and invested it in the richest country in the world to make more money for themselves, which they did, to keep the Americans happy that that money was coming back, to make more money possible in America. It's an unspeakable arrangement that history will always look back on the literal ripping off of the oil of the world to benefit the richest people in the world. It's the perfect analogy to the fact that today 3% of the continent of Africa has been vaccinated because in our modern era, we don't even save people's lives according to the Bible's injunction that we're all equal before God, etc., etc. So this story is a spectacular story of poor countries that could have and should have been able to get out of their poverty having been kept in it. And the specter now of the United States government doing what you said, threatening anyone who trades with Venezuela with sanctions and so forth, that I want everyone to understand is the United States government massively interfering in a market, a global market for oil, once again, manipulating it because they don't like what the regular market's outcome is, namely Venezuela pulls the oil up, Venezuela sells it, Venezuela gets paid, the people they sell the oil to get the oil. That's how a market works. We're supposed to respect markets. The government of the United States has never respected the market. It has seeked to control who gets, who doesn't, who can pull the oil up, who can sell it, to whom, at what price. Every step of this has been managed as a deliberate act of policy, completely contradicting the BS, the ideological cover for what we don't have, namely a so-called free market. Oil is one of the great illustrations of how that has been central to the development of an economy at the same time that it teaches its gullible students that we are a capitalist system based on competitive free markets and private property. Nothing could be clearer in the way of a corrective to that nonsense. Richard, in our last two minutes, I just have to read to you the weather forecast here in Washington, D.C. This is from the Washington Post. This is from the Capitol Weather Gang. Headline, D.C. Area Forecast. Seasonally summery, but sometimes smoky. Subtitle, smoke from wildfires in the West bring hazy skies through midweek. Our next chances for storm come Wednesday and over the weekend. So it's kind of this la-di-da report. After last week's streak of heat and humidity, we are enjoying a bit of respite this week with temperatures closer to normal and more moderate humidity. The wrinkle in the forecast is that sunshine is sometimes filtered by upper air smoke from Western fires. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, even these <laughs> weather reporters are normalizing the situation where this country is on fire, literally on fire. The smoke from Oregon and California is making Washington, D.C. overcast. The floods in Germany are called floods of a millennium. You have 
incidents of climate catastrophe all over the world, and then you look at the Wall Street Journal today or any other general interest newspaper about what's happening in the oil industry, and it's all about whether the price of a barrel of gasoline has gone up or down in the last day or two as the stock market goes through this kind of rocky stretch. And again, we talked about this on our show yesterday, but I feel like we're in this kind of surreal, dystopian place in human history where looming climate catastrophe isn't like something for the future. It's now. It's right now. And we know what causes it. And yet this kind of normalizing it, the lack of urgency, the genuflecting before the so-called market in the stock exchange and the futures, it's just so unreal. Anyway, we have about 90 seconds left, but I just wanted to read you the weather report here in Washington, D.C. Well, you know, I may have mentioned to you, my wife of many years is a psychotherapist. So the language of psychology, the concepts are part of my life. What you've just described is called in psychology, denial. A metaphor may help you understand it. If you're in a love or romantic relationship, and for whatever reason, it ends, it goes south, whatever words you want, you don't no longer have the feelings you once did, ditto for your partner. You can either face it, talk about it, and work your way through it, either to a amicable separation or maybe the recovery of what was once there. But you can't, of course, do that. You can't have the conversation, whatever its outcome, and the better consequences that come from talking honestly, if you practice denial. I think, and I've not thought this for a long time, it's recent, I think U.S. capitalism has come to its end and that the people of this country are engaged in massive exercises of denial. They deny the disease so they won't get vaccinated. They deny the outcome of elections so that outcome isn't what happened. They deny that the Chinese are the ascending economy of this century and the United States was the ascending economy of the last century. They keep denying what is happening to them. And the outcome of that is very poor because the best and only way to come out of this in good shape is if you face it and talk about it and work your way through to a way to live with it, whatever the it outcome finally is. That's what makes me fearful about this country. To have the withdrawal from Afghanistan be called a troop drawdown instead of a defeat, which is what it was, you didn't get what you said you were there to get, and you either were lying when you said it, or you're in a defeat now, and neither one of those is very palatable, so you just deny. It's a tragedy that we're watching, and one can only hope that programs like yours, conversations like this, do something to disturb this denial and get people who are good people and thoughtful people to begin to do the honest facing of their problems that somewhere they know they need. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.